Hello again, food enthusiasts. My name is Chris Troszkowski, your host today on the Future Foodcast, where we talk with thought leaders in today's food industry and discuss the trends and technology that will shape the future of food. Very excited today to be speaking with Stefan Zapali, the owner of Signature Culinary Solutions. Welcome to the program today. Thanks very much. It's wonderful to be here. This is going to be a great podcast. You and I had a really good call a few weeks ago, kind of getting to know each other. Such amazing insights into the world of food. For better or worse, today is a pretty special background <laughs> in the food space of a huge range of training, expertise, and experience. And maybe before we get into your current business and looking at the future, tell us where you came from in your you know, early exposure into the food space and what brought you to where you are today. Gladly, and uh, it was great chatting with you. I, would, I wasn't sure you'd want to hear the story, but it's a lot. It's a long story. I'll, I'll try to make it brief. I came up the old way. Uh, you know, I'd left home from a, a family of uh, very educated people. Everybody in my uh, family has gone through post-secondary with degrees, um, masters, and bachelors, and and I wanted to become a cook. Um, you know, uh, we're going back forty some years ago, and at that time, sure, what you're going to do in life, or you weren't academically inclined. The guidance counselor in the school would generally say you should become a cook. <laughs> it was a nice way of saying we don't know what to do with my father saw you know, he saw us flipping burgers basically. Um, you know, even though we ate very well at home, he, he didn't see a cook in a chef role, I don't think, at the time. I went to school to study solid state electronics and lived with five guys studying cooking. I ended up doing almost all the cooking for them. I, I switched and went into cooking school. I don't do well in academia, I don't do well in school environments. I'm, I don't learn well that way. I need to learn practically. So I only stayed about a year and I started wandering around and I was so fortunate. All of my buddies were getting jobs. And I remember back then they were making about 10, $10 an hour, 10, 15 an hour. That was a lot of money back. Then. Now we're going back like 30 years, you know, and I was making like 385 an hour, but I was working for a master chef, one of the first kind of master chefs to come out of Europe into Canada. And there was a group of like 10 of these guys in Canada, kind of creating a new culinary scene in the sixties, seventies and eighties. And this chef. I, I don't, didn't know at the time he was actually teaching me. He actually changed his menu to educate me. Uh, it was phenomenal. So one day I went to him for a raise and he said, no, without even hesitation. But he said, if you work for me three more months, I'll send you anywhere in the world you'd like to go. He picked up the phone. I said, I want to go to Montreal, work in a hotel. And he made a call and uh, hung up the phone and said, you start September 1st in Montreal. And that was the beginning of an incredible, incredible, incredible journey. I, I went from there, a little restaurant in Wolfville, Nova Scotia with three of us in the kitchen. Uh, to a hotel of 100 kitchen staff. I progressed with because of the chefs there, knew other chefs and so on and so on. And I ended up doing other paid gigs in Europe or stages where I crashed on other uh, cooks' couches. I ended up working in 32 countries over the next uh, five to six years. Sometimes it was only a few days in a little bistro in the south of France. And sometimes it was in a three-star Michelin restaurant uh, in Lyon. It was remarkable. I didn't care about money. I, I could hardly wait to work. We, we worked all around the clock. I, I don't know if we really stopped working. It, it was pretty much all around the clock. And the chefs were tough. They, they were kind of mean, to be honest with you. Nowadays, they'd probably be charged with assault or something. <laughs> But they cared for you too. It, it, it was a relationship. And I mean, they'd do anything for you as well. So it was like a tough family with a strict father, which I was accustomed to. <laughs> yeah, so I went from there, I bounced around. And, and one of the things that happened to me in France in the end was almost every uh, chef, as I got to know them well, would say, you're so fortunate to live in Canada. It's such an open space. If, if I was there, I'd open a small regional restaurant, only doing local. And I didn't know about this local. Like in Canada, we weren't doing local back then. It was just coming. This is in the late 80s now, early 90s. Uh, so I, I bounced back. Uh, this in my mind, I came back to Canada. 
I opened a restaurant for um, 5,000 bucks. I got a Canadian Tire MasterCard. I opened the first uh, version of Seasons and Time. Wow. And looking back, uh, that was the most amazing two-year period of my life. It was just incredible. We grew everything. Um, we had no money. We didn't do it because it was cool. And we weren't trying to be trendy. And we weren't trying to hug trees. I didn't know anything about carbon footprint. I just had no money. So we would, we would grow things because it was cheaper and I loved trout fishing. So I'd catch trout and would serve them on the menu. I hunted a partridge and we weren't supposed to hunt birds in Canada at the time and serve them on your menu, but I did. Yeah. So that little restaurant, you know, it, it was passion. So because it was only driven by passion and no capitalist um, thought process, it became quite successful. At least that's my belief. It became successful because of just raw passion. I was very fortunate at that time to meet some really wonderful people in Canada, like Anita Stewart uh, came to my restaurant and promoted me, uh, Rosanna Cara from Food Service Hospitality, uh, Mitch Kostick. These people kind of, they saw me at my early roots and gave me a bit of guidance and direction. And they also told me what I was doing was okay. Because I was almost mm -hmm. embarrassed about what I was doing. I, I couldn't afford fancy glasses and I couldn't afford to bring in uh, Wagyu beef. So I was doing local because I was broke and, uh, and I was a little bit embarrassed about it. <laughs> the, the restaurant, it became quite successful, quite well-known. And as a result, I became kind of well-known and I started traveling a lot for business, but I became quite arrogant. And, um, you know, you get caught up in this whirlwind of it all. You're flying around, there's private jets sometimes. Uh, you know, you're off to this culinary competition, you're in a newspaper. So you're reading your own press and your head can get a bit big. And a chef, because of the hours you work and the intensity, I do believe a good healthy ego is necessary. It's a very tough job, but it can get blown out of proportion and then it becomes dangerous. So, and I'd shifted my thoughts to become a bit more materialistic and capitalistic. And I wasn't gardening as much and I wasn't, you know, so something changed and I became a little bit dispassionate. Um, I started getting offers for large scale corporate consulting and I was making absolutely no money. We were losing a lot of money in the restaurant at that time. So I shifted over to do large scale corporate consulting for, for very big companies. Um, at first, what I helped them do was uh, what we call a dog and pony show. Basically it's a sales show. So a salesperson goes in, I go in as a chef, and we try to figure out what a restaurant wants and kind of create on the fly something to fit their menu. What I took that to later with most of my clients is a very well thought out and uh, methodical approach where we would study the menu of the restaurant we're approaching. We had looked for solutions or what they, we thought they may have uh, struggles with. And then we would go in with that solution and present it to the chef and help him create that as his own idea to sell it to his senior team. And that became very, very successful approach. And um, it kept me on the road again for another um, five to seven years of global travel. Um, some of those years, some of those years, 250 to 300 days of travel. I got a call from a company in Montreal who wanted to sell their factory to a company in France. And this company was an industrial meal manufacturer for airlines. It was a huge education and I owe a massive debt of gratitude to the owner of that company. Uh, he taught me so much of a business. Uh, what I saw while I was working there was a more boutique approach to what they were doing. It was very huge. The factory on downtimes cost a lot of money to run. They had huge labor challenges. And I started wondering if there wasn't a better approach to this massive, I call it like the Costco approach to retail. Is there a better approach in the independent retailers like the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker? And 
I thought, what if you made factories that had discipline, like a protein factory, a starch factory, and then you had an assembly factory. And this would allow you much leaner operations, more focused operations and, and food safe operations and pull it all together. Mm -hmm. I thought I'd bang that together in a year or so. And the banks would line right up and throw money at me to do it. I was 18 months. So I, I'd left this company and I'd created this new company, SCS. Yeah, I was 18 months and I hadn't sold anything. And my wife was suggesting I probably should focus more on consulting and maybe less on this idea of sell food to airlines one day. I said, okay, well, the next morning I'll pack it up. I'll basically get a job. So the company started at that point. Yeah, that year we were very lean. We barely broke $100,000 in gross sales. And we had that idea and we continued to grow it. In between there, the company basically was an outsource model. We found partners all over North America who would like to produce food for us. And we had managed their operations from a quality assurance, culinary and sales perspective. We weren't brokers because we had a very, um, uh, we had an active list of duties daily to perform. That was taken off very well for us, but I am a chef and a bit of a micromanager control freak on quality. So I wanted to build my own bricks and mortar. Uh, so I, I commenced on that five years ago. I remember the day quite clearly uh, for me, it was March 19th was the day of decision-making 2019. Uh, we had a meeting on the 9th that we said things are not good. I just come out of Denmark. I'd got the last flight out of Copenhagen airport before they closed the airport. Um, what happened to our company? We were 92% airline catering and uh, we woke up to uh, basically no sales in April. I want to dive into this. I want to kind of bring into a finer point for our audience yeah. to really understand kind of where you're coming from here. And we have to understand that you started professional life as a, accidentally, it would seem as a line chef, had a very traditional and very professional training as an executive professional chef, pursued that activity around the world in dozens of companies or restaurants, found your way back to Canada, essentially became a, a future truth teller, if you will, for the industry on these are the trends and this is what you should be doing with your restaurant. Highly sought after as a consultant in that space, so much so that your wife wanted you to go back and do that. You have fallen, if you will, not fallen into, but you chose this path of, let's call it food manufacturing, but uh, very boutique focused food manufacturing that meets your standards as a top-notch chef that brought you up to the point of, you have this amazing multi-decade background, the world that started in March of 2019 in Canada, where you have this infrastructure of producing very good quality food, great record also with airlines as customers. Now what? What happens now? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, you know, I did leave out a couple of things just quickly. During that period of, um, I would say, 19, let's say it's, and I'm terrible at dates, let's say it's 90, early 90s, 92 to 99 were kind of glory days of seasons and time. And and I'm going full on, I'm gardening and got a little orchards going where we're actually trying to make calvados by putting bottles over the apples. You know, I'm mm -hmm. full on, right? I'm a member of the Epimium Society, Cuisine Canada Charter member, uh, La Chef's Association, uh, White Tooth. I'm sitting on a board of directors for, you know, nine different things in Canada. I'm on the Red Seal certification board, you know, um, so I'm full on in this and I loved it, but I had absolutely no money. You know, I know in the audience, there's lots of people, yeah, money, whatever, I don't care about money. Well, I like to travel and I like to eat. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't have any money, you can't hop on a plane and go to Noma and have dinner tonight. It's 5,000 bucks to get there. So... Uh, I want to do that. So as a result, I need to be somewhat capitalistic in my thinking. So at one point in my early 30s, mid 30s, I said, I have to, I have to monetize this to a degree, right? So the airlines were primarily more about um, generating money. And I truly did believe I could affect the quality of food on the airlines. I, I truly wanted to change the quality of food. I'm still working on it. But what's happened now is, you know, and everybody used the word pivot. So we hit 
we hit the wall. It's, it, you know, I've got 51 full-time employees, 100 part-time, and we suddenly have $27,000 in the bank. And we're, so the first thing we do is, is I'm from the streets. I'm from, you know, I'm not from the book of business. I just looked at the equipment I had. So what can I do? The first thing I saw, I saw people on TV getting these masks handed out to them. And I was thinking, that's kind of gross. Everybody's touching them. As soon as I said it, I called my general manager and said, can you run some masks? Take your mask off, run it through the sleeving machine on our sandwich line right now to take a picture he did i took the picture i flipped it to a bunch of people in the industry and they're like oh yeah we'll take a hundred thousand of those we'll take five hundred thousand so we started sleeving masks right away at a loss probably i did the math but i don't think there's any money but we had to generate money we so i took sales some of them probably not profitable sales and we got into everything uh we uh, at one point i joked with the guy said look we'll, we'll do hot dogs for you and he said oh really so i need a uh, five thousand hot dogs in montreal for blah 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 we did everything and then slowly as as my team and i were doing that i was looking forward at what we can do for the future so what happened was I realized in the pandemic, most of the product developers were at home. The buyers were at home. I was thinking, how is this happening? These are very busy people who are usually looking at myriads of food samples all week to make decisions for the future. So our team started to invest heavily in R&D. Instead of cutting back, I added staff, I invested money, we bought equipment, and we started really looking at how do we make food better quality, safer, longer. So naturally, we, we, we went to sous vide because as a technique, we all knew it was a very sound culinary technique. And working with uh, chefs like uh, Dave David Song in my department, um, we made that safer. We took the restaurant sous vide, played with the temperatures and the pH of the raw materials a bit and some other proprietary things. We created the same culinary product but we can get it to 30 and 60 days shelf life without chemicals or anything like that. So this was exciting. What we did was started getting a hold of the retailers and the buyers and the product developers and sending food to their homes. Hey, can you try this? Would you like to try it? And then they started calling and say, hey, could you send these items to our, you know, we'd like to look at these. Just before kind of when the things were lifting, uh, the government was lifting the bans and everything, we were flooded. I mean, it was, it, it was unbelievable. It was like a floodgate opened. And um, so basically our company is, uh, took 300% growth in 12 months and quit completely into a new sector. So it's not really 300% growth, it's complete growth. The airline sector has now returned. We were very, very supportive of it the entire time. We were delivering five sandwiches in Vancouver some days at a $150 cost for delivery. So we did our part. As a result, I think they've been very charitable in giving us business back and rewarding us for what we've done. So that piece of our company is actually back to the original size. It was, but it's a very small portion of our company today. Maybe you can describe a bit more for us. What do you see your company being today? It sounds like a very strong focus on satisfying the airline industry, but you've shifted, you've pivoted to accommodate what's been happening in the world. What is that today? And what do you see as the future, not only your business, but maybe the restaurant and food service business? Yeah. So we're still partway through this shift. You know, one thing about myself is I don't really understand the magnitude of doing something. If you said to me right now, hey, let's go climb Everest. I'm like, all right, let's do it. But I don't really understand the difficulties between here in the peak of Everest. I just figure we'll put together a plan and get there. <laughs> Same thing in business. So I thought we would shift a lot faster than we did. I mean, a year is very fast, but to me it's, it's, it's glacial. So where we are today is we've added equipment, we've changed staff to a degree, we've educated staff and trained, and we're increasing our culinary level of long life food. So we've applied this sous vide. I don't really like to say sous vide because it's more of a, a gentle pasteurization technique using moisture. Um, some of it is true sous vide, but really you're stretching it. Where we are is not really the topic. Where we are is sort of a 
a mishmash of where we used to be and where we want. We have a lot of technology, a lot of equipment, a lot of education, a lot of lab results, and now we're ready to ship. Where we want to go and where we see the massive void in the industry is we want to provide mise en place to restaurant groups or restaurants. Long ago, I had this idea that restaurants can't survive financially working independently the way they do. You know, I was thinking about it. How many guys are chopping onions right now in this minute in Toronto? You know, too many. The task of chopping an onion is not a big deal. But the chefs all want the onion chopped relatively fresh for chemical reasons. I thought, why wouldn't there be a commissary or many commissaries in big cities like Toronto? There's this activity, maybe there's a, you know, a hundred chefs are putting in orders today from that section. Some are chopped onions, some are sliced garlic, some are dry garlic, roasted garlic, caramelized onion, but all coming out of that. And then you've got your root veg and you've got your, so a couple of years ago, I brought on a business partner who's a very large produce company. The direction I want to go is, first of all, chefs never, uh, restaurants never made any money on that activity. That's called passive uh, labor. There's no ROI on passive. It's more ego labor. It's getting you ready to look wicked good later. The longer and harder you work during the day, the better you look at service. But no one wants to work those hours for free. The culinarians who are entering the most, and I shouldn't generalize like that, a lot of the culinarians who are coming into the arena today would rather be at that last step finishing the plate, talking to the guests, showcase, the hard labor, grinding out, chopping and dicing and slicing for hours on end, not as, not as alluring to most people. Anyway, even if you could hire those people, you can't, there aren't any. So restaurants won't be able to open. How do you focus your activities on only the active part of your labor, the money, the ROI part? So to do that, you need to eliminate that prep. How do you eliminate and be comfortable doing so? You're not going to eliminate it all. No one could create a company with customized everything. So what we want to do is generalize. And we've studied the majority of the larger menus in Toronto and looked at the consistent prep that's done. And there's a large amount of similar prep throughout the city done every day. So our company wants to be able to supply that prep in various stages. It's Christmas and there's a lot of honey roasted carrots I saw on menus. Honey roasted or honey glazed carrots, you know, it's nice. So you can buy a carrots 89 cents a kilo in the bag, peel them, use your, get rid of the yield, get rid of all that. You're at 250 a kilo now for your carrots, coliforms, botulism spores, whatever. Now you have those carrots. Now you're going to dice them. You're going to lose a lot of yield, shaping them, whatever. You lose more labor and time. And now you've got these carrots costing you around 450, five bucks a kilo and they're raw. Now you're going to roast them, but you're limited on staff. You're going to burn some of them. You're going to lose some of them and you're going to have your roasted carrots. But now you've got roasted honey glazed carrots that are only good for 48 to 60 hours. Most chefs wouldn't want them even one more day. They might use them the second day. We can do the honey glazed carrots for six bucks a kilo good for 30 days in a bag. The chef says, yeah, but I don't want honey glazed carrots all the time. Okay, roasted natural. And now you add whatever glaze you want at the end. You want honey, you want chipotle, you want a pumpkin spice, whatever you want to do. So we're trying to find ways that the chef could pick up mise en place at the stage facility requires, depending on his staff needs, and he applies finishing touches. Or for the restaurant owner who doesn't have chefs, as a kitchen manager, they may want completely ready to serve on a plate honey roasted carrots. Need a microwave. So you're envisioning, and in fact, you're actually starting to deliver on a shift that you perceive in the market where through labor issues, especially, but enabling a restaurant to produce the same high quality products, but they don't have to do the front end prep work. You're essentially delivering, if you will, the hard heavy lifting part before the beautiful plating activities, or at least in this case, the final cooking of, of the product in a way that has the same health benefits without preservatives, chemicals, et cetera, and essentially saving the restaurants significant costs 
and, and making probably making their menus more flexible because they can pivot much more quickly as well. Exactly. And, and what you're doing is allowing that human part, that humanization part at the service, which is most important, the interaction of, of someone in the kitchen with the front of the house staff or even with the guests. And that person is not burned out now. They're not coming off a 16 hour shift. And we'll get to that probably in a minute because I, I really think the future of restaurants is more of entertainment and it's got to be interactive. It's not just sitting down to eat. You know, you, you go through life and you, you meet exceptional people and you remember certain things and that it was a uh, Iggy Shark Four Seasons amazing guy you know amazing hotelier and uh, he said uh, one time systemize the predictable so you can humanize the exceptional when David and I were talking about this Mies project originally I said you know what why does everybody work on what's predictable and that and that's exactly what he was trying to say so why would you make quinoa in your restaurant like seriously do you think you're going to cook quinoa better than us I mean what's the point so today my factory made four ton of quinoa. Why would you make your five kilos and the guy up the road his five kilos? There's no point. Sorry, go ahead. There's no, there's no um, customization to it. You're not adding mm. value. There's no personal touch you're adding to that. Well, you, you mentioned also this is an experience. And I think one of the experiences that we're seeing people um, having an increasing desire for, and in some cases making purchasing decisions on is really understanding what's in their food and where it came from. Interest yes. in locally produced locally grown and produced food, understanding any chemical issues. Um, if the food's coming from outside of the country, sometimes people want to know really where it's coming from, not only for their health and safety reasons, but sometimes it's a personal connection in their views of sustainability yes. and that it's not coming from some un unhappy situation. It seems like what you're doing also will enable that transparency in food supply chain also, because as a larger producer of say quinoa, you probably have more leverage to understand where it came from, frankly, to provide assurances with transparency that this product meets certain standards. How do you see that playing into your business going forward and maybe many other people's businesses? That's an exceptionally valid point. And we haven't talked a lot about it, but I did say we can single source. So we know the farm and we can buy our quinoa from one source and we can go there and meet those people. There's interaction there when you're buying container loads and, um, and you're actually providing a living for a certain group of people. Boy, we could probably talk for hours and hours and hours on global versus local because I, I have some huge conflicting viewpoints on that. Um, I'm very much about supporting uh, first to my neighbor. You know, can I give business to my neighbor? Of course, that's a benefit to my community uh, automatically. That makes complete sense. But I don't believe that's the sole you know, goal in life is to buy only local because we're a global economy. And, we, and what people have to understand is we must keep the whole axis spinning. And if you start to lessen some of the global purchases, what you're going to actually add is inefficiencies, the export import spectrum. Not for one moment, can your little potato patch next to my restaurant support Canada? So right. I, I have very strong views on it. I can get into the whole sustainable fishing too. I will never have an argument with you about your neighbor going out in a boat, this outboard motor to catch scallops and it's better better for the environment than a, a dragger going out that's incredibly well put together and it goes out for 30 days straight, catches only beds on satellite imaged floors, mm -hmm. ocean floors. So I, I, I just got this massive macro viewpoint on it and, I, and people seem to drill down on one particular point of sustainability. Traceability, I think, is where we need to start to focus. Okay. And then from traceability, we can decide what- Yes, and traceability is a really interesting space on the technology side, but it seems like you're, you lean heavily into technology with what you're doing today. But as we look at traceability, there's a whole bunch of new technologies that have not only become popularized, but are actually viable technologies these days for providing that transparency and trust 
into traceability and in distributed systems that we think about where you don't, not everything has to go through Amazon or through Walmart or something like that. There are systems today that you may have 50 different suppliers that you're absorbing most of their supply, but you're able to contact them all directly and manage them on these distributed systems. Um, sometimes fancy words like blockchain and others get thrown around, but I'm curious, where do you see sort of these newer technologies playing into your work, but also how the whole concept of distributed everything is, is starting to become popular, even in the mainstream? That's a lot of questions in one. Sorry um, about that. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's, it's good. Logistics right now, supply chain are completely shaken up. Again, back to that. I know there's like um, consult, load consolidators. They work at all the border points and they put together loads. Right. right now, what you have is a lot of independent people shipping stuff all over the place. There's not a lot of teamwork going on. So you've got very expensive shipping costs happening um, for small loads, inefficient shipping. So I kind of daydreaming. I went off the last part of your topic but on the other end of it distributing to the end user there's some real challenges right now what I, I read something recently that refrigeration is actually the number one detriment to the environment mm. um, as the highest footprint is refrigeration i was thinking of all the refrigerated vehicles running around the city and well I mean, as we think about you know the technologies that are enable enabling traceability oh. and, and tracking of food products um, you know, setting aside the details of the technology, but how do you see from your customers and their customers, which are the end consumers, the interest in understanding um, where their food come, comes from and the added benefits potentially in, in sort of generating their interest in consuming products for saying, yep, I know my potatoes came from this farm. I feel comfortable that my coffee came from this place. Um, how do you see that playing into your businesses? So right now, the majority of my business still is co-packing. So, you know, a lot of my stuff ends up on the shelf under a label of one of the retail giants, right? Mm -hmm. um, so therefore, I don't have a lot of control on that experiential part on our, on our own foods. And we developed this ages and ages ago. And again, it's like, I keep saying barcode, but it's not. It's a, uh, a QR code. Thank you. A QR yes. code. And you know, this, this we came up with years ago. We created a, a box called uh, Are We There Yet? A kid's snack box. And we actually mm -hmm. tried to trademark Are We There Yet? Apparently you can. And in this kid's snack box, you could that, that, that put your iPhone over to, the, I think it was a Blackberry or whatever, you take a picture of it. And it would uh, it would tell you where you are, show you a little map. So the kid now sees where he is on the road and knows where he's going. And so we were on that, like, uh, I guess that was eight years ago, seven, eight years ago. I think that technology has a massive opportunity. I think pendulums really swing. And there was a point when I was at a restaurant somewhere and the waiter came to the table and was like, um, you know, you have this evening a sole filet caught by Jacques in Quebec. <laughs> and then you have a blueberries picked by, I was like, you know, I was at the table 30 minutes, right? I don't really care. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what I, if you had said, you know, everything has been gathered by local uh, uh, Quebecois, you know, farmers and foragers, that would have been exciting too, because I didn't remember mm -hmm. the name when I left. I think that pendulum swung too far and then it will come back. But I know my daughter is very interested in what are these Prince of Rodan potatoes? You know, she always asked because she was born there. So I think these QR codes have a, an opportunity to educate very s quick snapshots. Yeah. And uh, I think they can be experiential as well. When I tried to trademark street foods, which apparently you can't either, we have a whole lineup of handheld snacks. What I wanted to do is we just took some quick pictures. Say you're eating a, a shrimp pad thai wrap. There's a quick shot of me walking through a wet market in Qingdao, mm -hmm. China, and all the shrimp and, you know, everything. And it's just very exciting for like, I'm talking five seconds of noise and you're biting into this wrap and you feel like, and you can smell and you can see the steam coming off these mm -hmm. hookers. I think that's what people are after. Yeah. 
like they're Instagramming the hell out of it. Like, you know, no one's living their own life. We're all living each other's lives. Mm -hmm. um, so it's this vicarious thing. It's this. Yeah. And I think this is kind of going back to some of the earlier discussion we had where you have tremendous insights into where the food sector is going, restaurants, food service, et cetera. And I personally feel like most of the time, those insights are much more valuable, of course, than the technologists that can put it together. We all have to work together at the end of the day, but thinking about QR codes, well, people are going to buy the hell out of this coffee because they can scan a QR code and see a certificate there. They might the first time. Yeah. What gets them coming back is they saw you with that cool video clip for five seconds and they want to see what's next. They want to yeah. see what's there. And right. probably they also want the quality certificate. You know, that's like, if you will, table stakes, to, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it's that media pull that gets them coming back. And I think this is also what's exciting about the QR code opportunity and the technologies that can bring what the purveyor, in this case, your company wants to bring to the customer, or you have a, a brand, your product is actually on a separate brand on a shelf somewhere. You can flow down this information to that retailer. They can then incorporate it into their product and that pulls people to their product and makes them excited as well. So very, very extensible. You articulated that very well. That's excellent. I think there's so much opportunity in that space. The experiential dining is one of the biggest factors. I think restaurants will continue that segregation into entertainment and fine dining and experiential celebratory and then eating. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if there'll be a midsection survive very well. You know, we have a massive problem with pricing in the food world because the chains have such massive buying power that set the bar so low. You know, you can consume a thousand calories for under $5 that no restaurant, you know, that's self-manned, self-owned will ever be able to participate. As a result, the expectation of a client to spend more than 30 or $40 on a meal is starting to sound very expensive when in fact it's very undervalued for the labor that went into creating it. I think there'll be even a bigger separation. What will restaurants do to your point to make people come back again? Mm -hmm. And it has to be experiential. I don't think it'll be just because it was wicked good. I think there has to be more to it. Yeah. Well, and it seems like you're reading the future again and building your business ahead of that future and being able to supply what the future restaurants need today, meaning really cutting out that sort of drudge, heavy lifting work that used to be part of a corporal training process. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For a really thousand hours. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's not as attractive or maybe it's not as possible to get that done today. I'm pretty sure it wasn't attractive 30 years ago either but it certainly produced some good results. But also just at the beginning of this stage for you, I think yeah, it's great right. to come back in, in a couple few months and see where this is at and, and really where it's taking the future of food, even in 2022, because once again, you've found a trend and, and are building on it. I think we're early. I think it's necessary. So others will come into the space and there'll be other ideas, better ideas, more functional ideas. Uh, you know, it's going to be exciting to see how this develops, but it has to develop. There's no choice behind it, or there'll be less restaurants, one or the other. There's yeah. just not enough staff to, to do the mise en place right now. Well, I think this has been a great introduction to your business and what you're doing and how you got here. I really appreciate you being with us today and uh, look forward to having you back again, because we're going to dig deeper into the tech side and what you're yeah. actually realizing in this new business that you're building. Good. And we'll talk a little bit about the robots that we're adding to some of the end of the line stuff that the mundane work that no one wants to do, like putting boxes into boxes. Thank you very much again, Stefan. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcast. Future Foodcast is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry.